Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. In each episode, we examine perspectives on industry and management to better understand how the world is changing and how those changes create business risk and opportunities to be managed. My name is Jason Winsunis. I'm a senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit. And this episode, though still focused on Asia, is dedicated to the U.S. elections and what could be in store for the world from either a new president in the United States after January 20th or another four years of Trump's brand of disruptive leadership. This will be a two-part series. In the first part, we will explore the two possible outcomes of the U.S. election, a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, and what each of those could mean for businesses in Asia. We'll also cover more specifically how each outcome could influence U.S.-China relations. To discuss the dynamics, I've asked our own Nick Morrow to join us. He's our lead analyst for global trade, China and Macau, as well as a supporting analyst for Taiwan. He's the first person I go to with questions on the Chinese economy, and he's also our go-to for cross-straits and Belt and Road Insights as well. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much for having me again. And for additional trade insight, we are also honored to include Ms. Zhang Pei, who is the director of the Beijing office of the U.S.-China Business Council. In her professional capacity, she supports U.S.-China commercial relationships and provides information services to her organization's member companies through engagements with think tanks, academics, and governments at all levels. And before joining the U.S.-China Business Council about five years ago, she also worked on EU-China relations with the EU-China Trade Project to design and implement capacity building and exchange programs for central and provincial Chinese governments. So she has a very hands-on view of business in the region. Thank you for taking time to join us today, Li Pei. Li Pei is based in Beijing. We had some connection issues during the recording, but she made some really good points that are valuable for listeners interested in U.S.-China relations. So we've tried to improve the audio as much as possible, and we do apologize for any inaudible parts in advance. Now, there's a lot to cover on this topic, and we don't have a whole lot of time, but just to get a bit more context first, Li Pei, tell us more about what the China-U.S. Business Council does and how that fits into the U.S.-China relations picture. Sure. So U.S.-China Business Council is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, and non-government business association. We represent more than 220 U.S. headquarters multinational companies and our board of directors is formed with 34 global CEOs, and our members represent business leading voices in their respective industries, ranging from agriculture, energy, manufacture, high-tech, healthcare services, and of course, financial services as well. Our mission is to promote stable and sustainable bilateral commercial relations. There's a lot of talk from U.S. government figures about, well, supply chains are going to move out of China. That's the narrative that the Trump administration is trying to, to sell right now. But is there any actual pressure to do that? I know that labor costs have definitely been rising in China for a long time, but people often say, you know, Vietnam can pick up the slack, but obviously Vietnam only has a fraction of the population, so that doesn't seem all that realistic. Are there Chinese companies starting to move supply chains out of China because of labor costs? Like, is there other beneficiaries in Asia for that 
sort of uh, narrative? When we talk about supply chain shifts, it changes by industry, it changes by company. And so it's not going to be an even thing. And so if we look at the supply chain shifts that's happened over the past 20 years, 15 to 20 years, a lot of it's been mostly in low-end manufacturing. So garments or low-end electronics, these sectors that really require relatively shallower input costs around labor or intermediate component assembly, which are really being driven by this. But to reinforce what Li Pei was saying, I mean, you look at the Chinese consumer market, that idea of being in China for China, that's really driving a ton of corporate interest elsewhere, particularly if you're operating in higher value added segments or in consumer facing segments. So the supply chain shifts, I'd say are particularly in manufacturing and they're not evenly spread across the manufacturing value chain. On that, I should note as well that there's a ton of interest in supply chain shifts and diversification, but a lot of times this rhetoric isn't matched by reality. I mean, these shifts are costly and they can be a logistical nightmare. I mean, you mentioned finding the right levels of talent. You also, in some cases, might need to find local partners, navigate local regulatory regimes, replicate you know, production ecosystems. I mean, China is very competitive because you have these production hubs or production clusters that can really minimize, you know, logistics or supply chain costs. That's not something that other parts of the world or even parts of Asia can really replicate that easily. That said, we still have seen some winners in this area. You mentioned Vietnam. We have seen a surge in investment in Vietnam over the past two years, as many of these companies are looking to diversify their regional footprint. And this was driven primarily by the tariffs. To a lesser extent, we've seen this in Malaysia and Thailand, and then interestingly as well in Taiwan, where there's been a really successful reshoring initiative by the Taiwanese government aimed specifically at Taiwanese firms. Other markets have struggled a bit more. So India and Indonesia, for example, they've tried to attract investment, but the business environments in both of those economies isn't very strong. And so there hasn't been as much of a robust increase in FDI as you know, you might see in Vietnam. But generally speaking, I do think that this trend is going to continue. It's not just going to be shocks from the trade war. It's going to be shocks from COVID-19. It's going to be as geopolitical risks deepen. And it's going to be as these countries themselves realize that there's an opportunity that they can encourage FDI into their markets. Um, but this, again, isn't really going to be an easy process for many companies. And it's not going to be something that occurs I guess, evenly, again, across the entire business community. So now let's start getting into the, the U.S. election angle. You know, there's obviously a lot of noise when it comes to U.S.-China ties, uh, including the never-ending saga around TikTok sale or, or not to sell, as well as controversies around Disney film Mulan. Li Pei, what are some of the things that you see as most concerning? Is there something you know, deeper than videos and movies that we should be paying attention to? I remember I learned from someone in a story that there has been a debate in China in the past uh, a number of years that how China should develop its core technologies, for instance, semiconductor. Either China should focus on its indigenous innovation or the development route should be focused on international cooperation. And I think for many, many years, the international cooperation was the dominant voice domestically in China. Until these days, we see that national security were overly expanded. For instance, 
the Huawei case. So that actually left very little room for in China domestically for that voices to be the mainstream. And I think in addition, the ideology won't help to solve any of those issues. And overly emphasize the ideology either in the US or China will ultimately complicate the current situation. I think what business want is that both governments should manage the differences through dialogue. And currently we don't see that, that dialogue happening. And that's the most concerning thing for us. So what are your thoughts then on how a second term for Trump would then affect that U.S. businesses in China? If the emphasis becomes more on ideology and less on cooperation, you know, that, that seems like it would be a problem. But are there other, other themes there that you think could become uh, worse or better given Trump's, if he takes a second term? Based on all the public released information, we understand that the core of the President Trump's second term agenda is to end our resilience on China. There are a number of key policy focuses. First of all, he committed to bring back one million manufacturer jobs from China. And also the administration might take actions on the tax credits for companies that bring back jobs from China to provide incentives and allow 100% expensing deduction for essential industries like pharmaceuticals and robotics who bring back their manufacturers to the United States. And the government might take actions to give no co federal contract for companies who outsource to China. And the Trump administration, of course, uh, want to hold China fully accountable for allowing the virus to spread around the world. I think what we've learned, definitely they will take a harsh uh, actions on China issues from all angles. But I think that there is a bipartisan consensus within the United States is that being harsh on China is uh, pretty much the direction or will be the leading trajectory for the bilateral relations. So Nick, same question to you. How would a second Trump administration affect U.S. relationships with other Asian nations? Sure. Well, when we look at Asia, a lot of this has been primarily a trade story, even with the U.S.-China relationship deteriorating into non-trade issues, such as human rights and security and other political topics. The main story between the U.S. and Japan or U.S., South Korea, et cetera, has primarily been trade, I mean, with the exception, of course, of, with North Korea. Um, but let's talk about trade first. So we'd expect trade policy to still be pretty aggressive. If you look at the U.S.-Japan mini-deal, for example, it was kind of a placeholder, similar to the, the first phase deal between the U.S. and China in January. But there's this expectation that there are a lot of things that are still need to be addressed before we can iron out a lot of the problems in the U.S.-Japan economic relationship. And so we'd see that as a potential flashpoint. We could see other trade issues between the U.S. and Vietnam and Thailand as well. I think both of those countries have already, there have been rumors that they might be designated as currency manipulators based on some of the foreign exchange movements over the past couple of years. So we'd expect a more aggressive approach there. And then finally, this idea of getting caught in the crossfire is probably going to continue to feature as a corporate risk for the region. So if we use the Huawei drama as an example, in May, TSMC, which is a large Taiwanese semiconductor fabrication company, was essentially forced to choose sides between 
the U.S. market and the Chinese market um, in order to comply with U.S. export regulations. And at the end of the day, TSMC, as well as a number of other major electronics components manufacturers, ranging from MediaTek to Samsung and SK Hynix, two South Korean firms, they were all forced to end their corporate partnerships in some way or the other with Huawei. That idea of being forced to choose sides is probably going to continue under Trump. And it could be and in ways that are potentially more destabilizing. Policymaking is probably going to stay relatively erratic, not going to be a lot of signaling before we see things announced by the U.S. administration. And, and so that idea of responding to crisis is probably going to be preserved as an element of corporate strategy you know, under any second-term Trump presidency. And of course, we have the security angle. Uh, we could talk you know, for hours about that, but it'd be interesting to see how the U.S. recalibrates its approach to North Korea, considering that the diplomatic gains so far have been very modest. And then, of course, how it you know, uh, deals with China. Some of the security flashpoints around Taiwan or the South China Sea under a Trump presidency, with that erratic policymaking, we could see a bit more risks there in terms of particularly an accidental diplomatic confrontation or military confrontation even. And so I think the key takeaway from all of this is that risks are going to be very, very high in terms of you know, operational risk or supply chain risks or even security risks under a second term Trump presidency. Now, what if we you know, flip it around the other way and if Biden becomes president, what should we expect? Is it going to be similar or is it going to be very different? I think that many of these broad themes are going to continue, such as the deterioration in U.S.-China ties, but the tactics are likely going to change. So if we look at how the Trump administration has acted over the past couple of years, it's been very unilateral. They've promoted this agenda essentially of America first, where essentially, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. And so, you know, come on board, otherwise you're in our firing line. I think what's interesting is that if you look at the U.S.-China dynamic, a lot of the issues that face U.S. companies in China are also issues facing Canadians or the Europeans, the Australians, the Japanese, South Koreans. There really hasn't been any effort to form a consensus in, in terms of, you know, how can we tackle this problem multilaterally? Under Biden, we'd expect more of that engagement style model to be promoted. At the very least, this could reduce some of that uncertainty in policymaking that I was talking about. So maybe less policy by tweet for example, which sounds a bit silly, but I mean, when you're responding to a U.S. presidential action that's been declared via Twitter, it's, it's very challenging. Um, you have no idea the details. It oftentimes takes you by surprise. We would expect the U.S. to move away from that under Biden. But I still should note, I mean, Lipe mentioned this idea of a bipartisan consensus on China. We agree with that. And as an engagement model builds under Biden, this too could drive countries to choose sides. And so this is a theme that is going to likely emerge regardless of who wins the presidential election. And it's something that regional governments and multinational companies have thus far really tried to avoid. I think successfully avoiding it is going to be very, very difficult over the next four years, again, regardless of the presidential election outcome. And so companies really need to be thinking about their contingency plans here in terms of if we do have to choose sides, what does that look like? How can we insulate ourselves from these pressures? So, Lipe, maybe you can talk to what a Biden victory would look like from uh, inside China. You know, how does that play either with U.S. companies in China or with Chinese companies or the government? Like, what, what are the big shifts that you would expect to see from a Biden victory? 
Sure, I think Nick actually covers a quite a lot. I think on the China side, obviously U.S. election is a U.S. issue, but of, of course um, their policy on China or their strategy on China will kind of influence how China will respond to the future of the bilateral relationship. I think there is a consensus also within Chinese government is that the bipartisan consensus in the United States of being harsh on China will be a long-term trend. I personally don't see a change for the next four years. Um, so the, the only differences between Biden campaign and Trump are how they would approach China. So like Nick said, uh, we've seen a lot of unilateral actions against China, not only on China, but also on, on the other islands of the U.S. And I think that's one of the issues that Biden uh, has been accusing Trump administration a lot is that they would like to see more of lateral coordination and leverage multinational institutions to deal with China. And apart from that, I think uh, he would also like to increase the spending in the U.S. to approach China from a position of strength and likely maintaining this one tariff and hold China to its commitment. So I think that's probably the key aspect of the Biden victory. So both candidates have certainly been using China as a foil in their campaigns, and maybe it's all electoral theater, or maybe not, it's hard to tell. And you both seem to think that there isn't going to be a huge shift either way. But what are some ways maybe we could speculate on, uh, Li Pei, we'll start with you, as far as how China and the U.S. could step back from the edge of this, you know, bigger trade war? What what should we be looking for in terms of possible de-escalation you know, and what would that look like or is it even possible? Yeah, I think you asked a very good question. I think my answer would be very simple. Both governments should talk. But I guess that actually seems the most challenging thing at today's situation because apart from phase one agreement, which hold um, both sides and negotiation teams are talking on a regular basis to examine or assess the implementation of the phase one agreement, we barely see other dialogue happening. However, on the other side, we are also happy to see that there are more interactive dialogues between these communities and governments on both sides. For, for example, because we have offices in DC and Beijing and Shanghai, we create channels for companies to talk to the stakeholders, even during the friction of the trade tensions. And I think those dialogues are still continue to play a role in the stabilizing of the bilateral relationship. I think one thing is very important that both sides should fully implement the phase one agreement. I think what we are lacking right now is the trust. The lack of trust keeps us apart from talking to each other. But we do see that phase one because there is a consensus that being made by the both administration and there is a commitment that can be measured. So if both sides can, or especially China, can meet all its commitments on the phase one agreement, that will set a very stable tone, or at least it can be a stable factor to initiate further dialogues. Maybe we can have a phase two agreement, or maybe we can start talking about how we can manage our differences in high-tech sector. And ultimately, I think we are all being impacted by the COVID-19. And I think our main, there is a one main objective 
in both China and U.S. is that we need our economy to be recovered. So I think that there are still a lot of things we can do together, but we just need some stabilizer to ensure that there is a minimum of trust in between, and we can still talk. Even before COVID nineteen, it's definitely been a tough few years for U.S. companies in China. Can you tell us about how things have been on the ground amid the trade war and how things have developed since the pandemic? Are we at a point yet where companies are talking about leaving China? Sure. So, U.S. China Business Council actually conducted an annual survey on the China business environment with all of our members. Back to twenty years ago, so we do this survey on a consecutive years annually. And this year, we just launched our survey in August. And I can share some of the key findings, and it's actually very interesting. So, generally speaking, companies are commercially successful. Our survey data shows that the revenues in China operation increased last year. And the overwhelming majority of the companies who responded to our survey says that 97% of them were profitable. However, the trade frictions are definitely damaging U.S. companies' competitiveness. This is happening because of those U.S.-Chinese retaliatory tariffs, and also because U.S. companies are increasingly viewed as unreliable suppliers because of the increasing number of Chinese companies being added into the U.S. export control entity list. And while this issue is top of the mind, there are more long-term concerns for companies. Is that given the uncertainty of the bilateral relations, as well as U.S. companies' competitiveness and unreliable, and the perception of being unreliable suppliers, there are. Uh, companies may feel that there are more uneven playing field in China market.、Uh, what we hear from companies is that Chinese government policies and practices frequently offer competitive advantage to domestic companies over foreign ones. But of, of course, this issue is not just because of the friction of the bad relations, and this is something that has been、um, shown in our. A survey in the past few years as one of the top ten challenges, but we do think that the unstable relationship actually might even further damage U.S. companies' competitiveness in China market. So the the key points here are generally our number of companies are optimism of their participation in China's future economic growth. And although that optimism is being moderated、um, through the years, well, it feels today that most significant concern is the trade frictions. The reality is that China's domestic policy environment, particularly the policies which favor domestic companies over foreign ones, is the trend most likely to navigate or to negatively impact U.S. companies' outlook on the years ahead. So, Nick, same question to you. Are you seeing any corporate flight from China yet? I know there's been a lot of talk about supply chains moving, but it sounds from what Li Pei is saying that that's probably not really a big thing now. But are you seeing U.S. companies going somewhere else in Asia? Like, what's the story there? Yeah, it's similar in terms of 
when we look at the data and how that dovetails with the experience of USCBC, we also aren't expecting a mass corporate exodus from the Chinese market. There's still a lot of interest in China. I think particularly this year, China is one of the few economies that is expected to see real economic growth. Um, our own forecast is an expansion of real GDP around 1.8%. When you compare that to markets elsewhere, that's pretty good. And when we talk to some of our clients, they note that China is one of the few markets where they are still seeing you know, economic activity that is supporting their global operations. And so I think that's going to be something that works very much in China's favor. I mean, at the same time, I think there is still interest in what we would call supply chain resilience, this idea around diversification. I mean, that's really been one of the big macro drivers for the Asian trade story over the past few years. And that's likely something that's going to continue thematically over the next decade. To echo Nick, I think there are two points that are important to note is that, first of all, most of our member companies are actually in China for China, and they are in China to sell to the Chinese market. It will be extremely difficult for companies to be competitive in China without manufacturers there. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see a significant shift of uh, moving out of the supply chain from China market. And I think the second thing is very important is that the companies has to be successful in China market because it creates bounds to enhance the business elsewhere. For example, the R&D, and if U.S. companies leave Chinese market, the Chinese suppliers may emerge that eventually become global competitive players, which will further create damages or decrease U.S. companies' competitiveness. Great. Thank you both. Uh, that's the time that we've got. Thank you, Li Pei. Thank you. And thank you, Nick. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to all of you for listening. The EIU published two papers recently, one about U.S.-China relations under a potential Biden presidency, and another one that looks at regional trade policy amid U.S.-China strains and COVID disruptions. Links to both of those are in the show notes, so please go and have a look if you're interested to read more. And if you haven't listened already, I recommend the Checks and Balance, the weekly podcast on American politics from The Economist, available on all your podcast sources as an American living abroad, I find it a valuable resource for what's going on back home. And as always, if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from the Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit. 